Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today, we're joined by Flo Nicholas, a self-described non-boring lawyer. Flo is co-founder and chief operating officer at DEI Directive, a technology company helping organizations shape the future of work through inclusive and innovative practices. Flo began her career as legal counsel at various law firms and companies. She then worked in the telecommunications industry for several years. Later, Flo had the opportunity to join How to Contract, a training and development resource for lawyers. There, she served as Chief Growth and Community Officer and hosted the Contract Tech Showcase, a video series aimed at educating people in legal tech. Flo went on to create two local TV shows, Get Tech Smart and Get Resource Smart, which she also directs, produces, and hosts. These programs shine a light on New Hampshire's tech startup community and organizations that provide vital resources to residents in need. In 2023, Flo was named one of New Hampshire Business Review's Outstanding Women in Business and won Blaze Group's Best in Business Award for Best in Tech and Web3. In our discussion, she talks about what organizations should measure in their DEI initiatives, the way the law firms can leverage technology to foster diversity, her passion for negotiation, and how she developed her social media skill. Flo, thanks for talking to us, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Flo, thank you for joining. It's so nice to meet you. Well, it's nice meeting you as well, virtually, and thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, well, thank, thanks for making time. I, I want to talk a little bit about your, your, your professional journey, but before we go there, let's talk a little bit about your current effort. It's a relatively new venture, if I understand it correctly. Yes. Yeah. So I joined DI Directive uh, as a co-founder early in February of 2023, and I'm currently the uh, COO of DI Directive. And we're actually a technology company. I know a lot of people, when they hear the acronym DEI, there's an, sometimes like an assumption that this is like, oh, you're a consultant, you're doing workshops, but we are technology. <laughs> we're the CEO is a lawyer. I'm a lawyer. We're, we're two lawyers who have a technology background. And uh, we're really passionate right now about helping organizations successfully launch and implement their DEI strategic roadmaps. One of the things uh, that is really pushing us to be advocates for this is that we see a lot of organizations talk about diversity, equity, inclusion. Statements go out. They have mission statements. But unfortunately, behind those mission statements sometimes is very little to no action at all. There's no improvement. And one of the things that we've noticed is really a lack of tracking the progress of those DI initiatives. So our software is really primarily based on helping organizations actually track the progress of their DI initiatives. Go from being more proactive versus reactive when you have like a bias and discrimination lawsuit, for example, to really understanding what's going on within your organization and as well as benchmarking capability that helps you to compare yourself with other organizations to see where you stand uh, in the grand scheme of things in terms of uh, really building inclusive workplace. So we're really heavily focused on data analytics as well as compliance too. We're also a compliance platform. So organizations that have 100 more employees have to file the EEO-1 form. So our software automates that as well. So what type of data do you think 
is most useful to people who want to have successful DEI initiatives because there's a there's a lot of information out there. Too much information is, is <laughs> paralyzing, is not enough information. There's a sweet spot in there somewhere. What's sort of the sweet spot of data from your perspective? Yeah, that's a fantastic question, right? And all I have to say is we've heard of the great resignation. We've heard about quiet quitting. And we've heard about the well, some people might not have heard about it, but there's a new kind of hot trending concept called grumpy at work. <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> Just so you know, that's not new. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. It, the terminology coming out might be new, but yes, you're right. We probably have grumpy workers like everywhere. But essentially what's going on and the data that employees need to be collected, number one, employee sentiments. There is a thing where we forget that we actually need to speak to employees in the first place. You know, ask them questions like, how are you doing? Do you feel like you belong? Do you have a voice? Those surveys that should be done, and we recommend getting those surveys done like quarterly, the results from there, the reporting analytics from there will help organizations understand areas where, okay, employees are not happy with this. I'm not having opportunities for growth development. Maybe possibly it's uh, issues with gender pay equity. I'm not getting paid enough for the work that I'm doing. You've got to have an understanding of employees' sentiments so you know what areas that you've really got to hone in on and really work on fixing. The other thing that I've, I hear a lot speaking with HR professionals is, well, we hire people of color and then they come in our organization and then we can't seem to keep them. So are you tracking your attrition? That's number one. I left a big organization, a billion dollar company, and I was really, well, not excited to leave, but I was excited for the opportunity to tell my story because I thought I was going to get an exit interview and I never got an exit interview. And again, this is a billion dollar company. At that time, I don't know what they're doing now, but I didn't get an exit interview. So understanding again, why employees are leaving and monitoring those trends, right? Again, you got to be proactive, not reactive. You got to understand like, hey, do we have like a large amount of veterans leaving our organization or people with disabilities or maybe it's women? You, you, you got to understand who's leaving your organization. The other thing is you got to also see who are you hiring? Who's coming into your organization and what is the breakdown of that? Is there a trend? Stop monitoring those trends because that's how you're able to see, hmm, we seem like we keep hiring the same people. How can we improve our hiring processes? Or maybe there's a problem with the hiring processes. What exactly is that problem? So those are some of the metrics that we really encourage organizations to be measuring. I'm curious. I don't know quite how to phrase this question, but do you also measure criteria for success in an organization and correlate that to some of the DEI Initiatives. So we talk about why people leave, but right. there are people that stay and are and achieve success in the organization. Yeah. Does your analytics platform sort of begin to look for things? People who feel more feel more valued at work tend to stay and have more productive. I'm obviously saying self evident stuff. People who don't feel valued leave. Absolutely. And I think that's where these surveys are really critical because the surveys are, you, you can customize a survey and really hone in on what you want to understand. And you're also able to essentially, when you're taking a look at the attrition trends, right, you'll start also understanding from there, what is the consistent trend and exactly who are these people that are leaving? 
But for the people who are saying, you can customize those surveys to ask those questions. For example, what is it about organization ABC do you like, right? What is your proudest moments of being an employee at this organization? What are we doing right as organization ABC? What are the recommendations of things that you think we should change? So you can start getting that report in analytics. And this report in analytics is, is great whether you have an employee who's been there for 20 years or whether you have an employee who's been there for a year. But I will say this, we are constantly, we're, we're looking at ways to improve our software. And one of the ways, like most people these days, most tech companies, trying to leverage artificial intelligence. Aren't we all? Yeah, yeah. Trying to leverage that. And why we're looking at AI is data is great, but not all data is good data, right? There's some data that is meaningless, right? And, and the other thing is this, this is a platform. And to leverage this platform, you need someone, whether it's the HR professional, whether it's the people officer, wh whoever is overseeing your uh, inclusive uh, roadmaps, you need someone who is going to essentially be managing the platform. And some people might not want to be logging in every hour, you know, every day. So our thought process for 2024 in terms of the build of the software is what if the AI oversees that and is monitoring the trends for you and then sends you notifications? Hey, within the last three days, you've had 50 employees just leave. And here's the breakdown of what these employees look like. The dangerous trend, it's women, you know, for example. So that's one way we're looking to really kind of leverage AI to kind of really help organizations be able to kind of notice these trends. Although we are in real-time data, but really give them that more step forward of really being able to track and immediately know uh, what's going on. That sounds awesome because I, I would think to your point, you need someone to manage the software, but you also need the expertise in-house to understand how to interpret the data, what actions to take off of it, how you can understand what's important and what's not important. If AI exactly. can help focus that, that sounds great. Yeah, and that's that's our goal because, again, you can have an organization that has like 13,000 employees, for example, and trying to, and again, we visually, uh, we've done a great job at really making sure that our dashboard and the data looks great and be able to kind of see the breakdown. But again, it's a lot of data, especially when you have 13,000 employees. So having to be able to automate a lot of some of these tasks and processes, I think would really uh, make it a lot easier for organizations who are really trying to build these inclusive workplaces and, and are really looking to ensure that they are a step ahead of ensuring that they don't have a great resignation going on within, you know, their, their company. Uh, and if they, and if it is going on, that, that at least they will get immediate notification uh, and not have a mass exodus. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, be like, why didn't we know this was going on? Right. right. We, we want you to know what's going on so you can stop the bleeding like immediately. You hit on a point I, I'd like to tease out just a little bit more, which is you talked about visualization. That's such an important part. You can get all the great data and all the great analytics, but if you can't present it in a way that people intuitively understand it and present it, it's as, as if you don't have the data at all. Right. Sounds like you guys have focused on that as well. 
Oh, yes. That was something that was really important to us. We we know that, you know, some of the HR folks and, you know, some of the uh, whoever's overseeing the uh, DEI roadmap, they have stakeholders, right, that they have to report back to and, and say, here's what's going on. Here's what's working. Here's what's not working. Or, hey, I need more money, right? I need a bigger budget. And here's why. So you're able to print reports you're able to download an Excel spreadsheet. If that's your thing, you like Excel, you can you can download that. But yeah, it was very important for us to be able to really provide the visual data that will help like HR professionals and chief diversity officers and people officers to help their organization understand what's going on internally within the organization and be able to be ready when needed to do a presentation. So we definitely have that data visualization that looks great in the platform. So you and your co-founder are both lawyers. And I assume assume the software works for law firms, works for legal departments, works in that space. But I, I would presume your market reach is broader than just law firms. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm happy you brought up the law firms because right now the EEOC just released their um, year end report. And there's actually an increase in uh, bias and discrimination lawsuits by 50 percent. So that's not good. (laughs) Um, And just last week alone, Apple uh, got a hefty fine of twenty five million dollars for their hiring practices. So litigation, especially for bias and discrimination, uh, my prediction is, is becoming a very a hot topic. And for employment lawyers and civil rights lawyers, I think it's going to be busy for them, especially lawyers who are working on EEOC cases. So my hope really and what we've been really educating employers on is you got to focus on what could potentially happen if you're not paying attention to your hiring practices or your work culture. People are not afraid to sue anymore. We're seeing an increase in lawsuits and organizations need to be prepared. How law firms can come in here, the legal world still has a lot of work in terms of being diverse, right? We have big law firms that still struggle with diversity, equity, and inclusion. So law firms can use this in terms of tracking their own hiring processes, understanding the landscape within the organization, you know, who's getting promoted to partner frequently than others, for example. The other thing that we're also looking at is gender pay equity. There is data analytics out there that still shows uh, disparities in pay for some lawyers female versus men. And then if we do a further breakdown based on, again, race, we we see a lot of disparities too. So there's two ways the legal industry can use this software. Accountability and transparency on themselves and how they're hiring lawyers within the organization or for their clients, right? Especially the clients who are getting sued and having to pay these hefty fines is to say, hey, you might want to start looking at your hiring practices and using data analytics to track that. Why? It could potentially help you when you have a lawsuit. Because if you're having allegations against you that are saying that there's bias and discrimination, your data might tell a different story, right? You might actually have a great hiring process. You are showing that in various areas of your organization, there's diversity, whether it's your hiring veterans, people with disabilities. Again, when we talk about DEI, it's not just gender and race, it's it's broader than that. So yeah, those are the ways that I can see the legal industry leveraging this technology 
we are industry agnostic. So we are going, you know, essentially selling to any organization, whether you're in the healthcare industry, the legal industry, the tech industry, finance industry, anyone can uh, use the software. The world is a competitive place and, and your business is no different. You've got competitors out there. Give us the, uh, the elevator speeches to what differentiates you from the competitors. <laughs> yeah, I love this. So the way I look at it, you're right. We, we do have competitors out there. But I think where our competitor has a deficiency, we have an, an efficiency. What we've really tried hard to do is take a look at the offerings off our competitors and have really created an end-to-end comprehensive platform. So we not only do we have the analytics, we have the survey capability and the compliance piece is what we think is really big. Having the capability of being able to automate uh, the EO1 form for organization, it's a huge time savings. Uh, And the other thing that we're doing is we're building right now our own library of DEI trainings that are available on demand and can be assigned to any employee in the organization. So that's how we're separating ourselves from our competitors is we're, we're trying to package everything into essentially a one comprehensive platform versus, oh, well, if you need this, now it's an add-on. Oh, you need that. We don't have that. You're going to have to you know, go to that company and get that. I think people just really want one-stop shop deal. And that's what we're offering that uh, most of our competitors are not. That's great. That sounds exciting. Let's talk a little bit about your professional journey that got you to this place. You go to law school and you practice for eight or nine years. Why law school? Was that, I know your dad was a lawyer turned entrepreneur, I gather. Yeah, it's an entrepreneur and is is actually being more successful than being a lawyer. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah. So, so, you know, when I was in high school, uh, I was part of the speech and debate team. And I went to an all-girl high school, actually, in Massachusetts uh, called Academy of Notre Dame. And uh, I loved going to the competitions and, uh, you know, we would get a topic. You know, it would be something like write a pro and con for uh, the death penalty, right? So you, and you would have to make sure you prepare for either argument and be ready for that. And I've always loved that. I've always loved, you know, just debating, you know, and arguing, right? And my husband would probably agree. Uh, but I don't know, there's just something about it that's just fascinated me. Like even even when I go to a car dealership, I get excited because, you know, yeah, the fun part is about, you know, test driving the car, you know, for some, but for me, it's like the negotiating part. Because I always okay, love- Okay, that's they, a little scary just so yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because, well, I mean, they always say, but oh, we're going to lose money. You know, I that is my, when they start with it, I'm going to lose money if I give you this deal. That's when I really kick into overdrive uh, because I'm like, okay, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> but I just felt like I just had this natural gift, right? I can just really see things from, be outside the box uh, and just look at things in, in, in various ways. You know, if, you know, something, you know, especially once I transitioned and went corporate, and ended up in the telecommunications industry. And I'm overseeing this multi-million dollar modifications to cell towers, working with the engineering team, working with the construction team, as well as reviewing and drafting and negotiating these license agreements with my team. Sometimes there'll be situations where people would say to me, you're never going to get this uh, landlord to do this, right? Because these cell towers are, are, are real estate. And I've had to deal with negotiations with like, Foxwoods, for example, or Mohegan Sun. 
And I had one where it literally took me over two and a half years to negotiate. I left when I'm maternity leave and I thought that the deal was done. I literally, the person who was like, you know, going to be uh, uh, kind of looking at overseeing my work while I was on maternity leave. I said, listen, this deal is done. It's been negotiated. We're just waiting for signatures. When I came back from maternity leave. Still waiting for signatures, huh? Oh my God. Things changed. My point of contact disappeared. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Literally two years later and we're still in this same. And my manager said, you know, listen, if you can't get it done, don't worry about it. We'll try to figure something out. Or, you know, maybe we'll just pause this project. And I'm like, no way. This is not happening. Figured out a way to get it done. Went around. I was like, there's got to be somebody higher up from this POC who has the actual authority to sign this deal. So that's what I did. I went to the person, found the person who had the authority to sign the deal, went directly to them, said, we're done negotiating here. Here's the signed agreement. Can you please sign and send back? Right. And then from there, they brought in their legal department, which that POC never did, right? They were always the middle person. They would never connect me to the legal department. Now I had direct connection to the person who was a decision maker, direct connection to the legal department, and got the deal finally signed two and a half years later. And people told me I would never get it done, but I was determined I got it done. There you go. So what caused you to move from practicing law into the corporate world? You spent about eight years in the telecom industry. Why that move? Yeah, you know, I think I just got tired of going back and forth to court. Uh, I was doing bankruptcy at the time. That was like one of the, uh, my favorite areas of practice, although we were a general practice. I loved doing the bankruptcy. And at that time uh, as well, uh, you know, being a, a parent, a wife and, you know, wanting to as well, have more kids. I, I think part of it was just realizing there wasn't really going to be kind of like that work-life balance that I wanted. And I thought I would get it in the corporate world. So I was kind of naive, to be honest, <laughs> because I hadn't been in the corporate world, but I had this fantasy of what I thought it was, right, until I got there. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's why I wanted the transition. I wanted to see how else I could leverage my legal degree and being in, in the corporate world. And I also thought maybe that would also fast track my ability by having the Jewish doctorate to climb the corporate ladder. But I quickly found out that was not the case. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. But after eight years of telecom, you then go over and work with Laura over on how to contract. Why that move? Yeah. So during my time when I left corporate, I met Laura Fedrick as well as uh, another lawyer, Lisa Lang, and they kind of took me under their wings and uh, essentially became my mentors. They're wonderful and folks, aren't they? Wonderful. And, and Lisa Lang, I can't say enough about her. She's actually come to visit me before in New Hampshire and got to meet my kids and my family. So yeah, she's a fantastic person. But at the time, I was trying to transition essentially from corporate to corporate, and it just wasn't going well, to be honest. And Lara kind of just saw me and saw what I was doing. And, you know, it was like, listen, at this time, this is around when, like, I feel during the COVID time, legal tech, although it's always been around, because I remember using legal tech even when I graduated law school in 2005, uh, when I worked for a, a firm that was doing litigation. Uh, we were using an e-discovery tool. But around COVID, I feel like it's it's like everybody was just eating up, you know, legal tech solutions. 
So she wasn't intrigued by that part. You know, around that time, she, you know, she started really talking more about uh, how to contract and, you know, kind of really going out there and onboarding uh, new users and just saw my energy, saw my passion for technology and wanted to find a way to also educate, you know, lawyers on, on, you know, leveraging legal technology solutions. And that's why at some point we had our little YouTube show where I would invite legal tech vendors on. Eversort was on there before. Uh, Brief Catch, for example, was on there. And just like the way that I take complexities, right? A lot of people, when they talk about technologies, you know, they tend to be so complex. And some of the feedback that we were getting from lawyers was like, yeah, you know, we want to use legal technology solutions, but some of these people just make it sound so complicated. Like there's no way we'll be able to use this type of software. So that excited me, the ability to educate people on these legal technology solutions that were really not as complex as they thought and really invite those uh, vendors uh, onto the show and, and have them do demos and then really provide that simplified breakdown of here's how it works and here's how you can leverage it for your contracts, whether it's management, drafting, or negotiated. So during that time that I'm working with Lara, I really learned a lot. Lara is like, for lack of better words, she's like a hustler. <laughs> that woman is is a businesswoman, very strategic. Yes, she is. She's she's something, isn't she? Yeah, and I learned a lot from her, and she's really one of the people who motivated me to not just think about forever, like having to work for someone, but also thinking about the ability to use my own creative juices to create something on my own. So you, you've made great use of social media, non-boring lawyer, which yeah. is a fab, fabulous tagline. There yeah. you go. You got your shirt and everything. That's cool. Yes. Where did you develop the savvy that you clearly have in social media? Is, is it from watching people just trial and error? How'd you learn that? And what advice do you give other people who may want to use it to help their careers? Yeah. First of all, I can't believe I've been on LinkedIn for 18 years. That's number one. I got a notification that says congratulations. And because I feel like I've only been using LinkedIn for three years. But what I did was watching people like Lisa Lang and I was watching people like Laura and they encouraged me because I was terrified. You know, I remember when I started creating, I was just like, oh my God, I only have like five likes. Like, this is crazy. I'm not coming back. I just need to delete this. (laughs) But I'm thankful for is understanding that I don't have to be anybody else but myself. People want you to be authentic. People want to learn. People are eager to learn. People want to know what I'm doing in terms of my community advocacy or, you know, the latest new thing that I'm talking about in terms of technology. But first I had to find my spot, like the stuff that would make me just be excited to talk about. And once I figure that out, you know, how do, how do I stand out from the crowd and what do I have to offer that someone else might not be offering? Or even if they're offering it, how do I stand out? How am I different? And once you know that and you figure that out, you're going to attract, you know, other people. One of the things I am fortunate about is that I was one out of about 120 people that were selected to be part of the LinkedIn Accelerator Program, Technology and Innovation. During that program, for six weeks, we were working on creating content that was based on technology and innovation for LinkedIn. When I got in that program, I was literally stressed out. Because they were people here, one was like a chief of staff of Twitter, 
you know, one, there was another person from Google. They were like, you know, all these fantastic people. And I was just like, oh my God, what am I doing here? Why was I picked? Oh, I'm this, I'm going to just fail. Oh, the imposter syndrome rears <laughs> the its ugly imposter head. Syndrome. But one of the things I love about the program is that LinkedIn would have these weekly webinars that taught us how to write. They would expose us to some of like the top content creators that had like millions of followers. And they came and they told us how they started. And one of the things I remember that they said, don't overthink it. Even take a selfie from your phone. Like you don't have to go to a photo shoot and look perfect. Like just don't overthink it. Just be you. Make it simple. Sometimes simple is the best. And from there, and I think that's where I've seen a transition. I've learned how to be more creative and being somebody who loves technology. I love using tools like Canva and creating my own videos and creating my own uh, graphics. And I think from there, knowing just be simple, don't overthink it has been great because I, I I'm not giving myself pressure to, again, to be something that I'm not. What you're seeing is me. And that's what people want to see is who you are and, and, you know, what value you have to provide. You made an interesting point when you talk about the folks they brought in. Uh, Storytelling is such an important part of mentorship, isn't it? That ability to sort of speak to your own lived experience and share that with somebody else is, is an incredibly important thing. That six weeks that I've been part of that LinkedIn Accelerator program was definitely life-changing because, again, it exposed me to, you know, all these other social media. And there was one woman who was on there who, I mean, she's huge. I mean, just to even have a call with her, like you got to, <laughs> I think you got to spend like $2,000. But to be, to be a part of this program with these incredible people. And as you mentioned, that, that word imposter syndrome, where you, you, you think you're insignificant compared to others. When you step outside that box and you just are you and you create your stuff, you are just as talented as the person who can charge, you know, the $2,000 per hour. No, that's right. I, I know we're running a little bit over our time, but I, I don't want to let you go without you telling us a little bit about your TV show. Yes. Thank you for that. So I created Get Tech Smart because I wanted to put a spotlight on the tech startup in my community in New Hampshire. We have a growing technology sector and I just feel like people don't know about it. When they think about New Hampshire, they think about, you know, coming to the beach, the mountains, the lakes regions, but we're more than that. I mean, we, we really have a growing hub. There's a lot going on and I just really wanted people to be aware of it. But in addition to that, really educate my community, whether you're a small business, an individual, of all the emerging technologies that are happening, why it's important to, you know, really understand what's out there, how to leverage it, how to do it, how to use it, and things to be aware of, right? The legal consequences, the risks, the regulation, copyright issues, for example. So I just really wanted to educate people, but again, do it in a way where it's simple for anyone to understand whether you are someone who's super technical to someone who struggles to even turn on your laptop. I just wanted to do something to just really help people understand more about the technology that's out there because we know it's coming out at a fast pace and some people can't keep up and I wanted to help people to keep up with that. You clearly have a passion for technology. Where, where does that come from? Did that generate in your time in telecom? Did you have it? Have you sort of grown up with it? Yeah. You know, one of the things I always say is I wish I was exposed to STEM earlier on in my career. 
uh, or I should say earlier on in my education, because I probably would have gone into tech, but I didn't have that exposure. It was like doctor or lawyer. But I think what it is, is from the, the telecom world. You know, we were, I worked on the 4G project, 5G project. I had to learn how to read engineering drawings, structural analysis, work with engineers. And that it just intrigued me, right? It was just this world where I was fascinated, never exposed to it. And I just fell in love with it and thankful that because of the work I've done, ended up getting the New Hampshire Tech Alliance Tech Professional of the Year uh, in my state, as well as getting the New Hampshire Business Review Outstanding Women in Business as well this year. So I'm fortunate that people love what I'm doing uh, enough to stop, nominate and recognize me. So this is a motivator for me to, to keep going, as well as to advocate for early curriculum of STEM education so that another child who might not really get to experience and love technology, they don't have to wait until adulthood to get that experience, but they can get it early on uh, so that maybe they can enter into that career and be an engineer or the next AI developer. That is the key, isn't it? To get to, get to these kids early particularly if you're trying to facilitate diversity in the tech field, to get to those kids early. 100%. And I do a lot of work in my state, which involved with really promoting STEM education. That's wonderful. Well, Flo, we've, we've run out of time. We need to wrap up. You're just doing some great things. It's exciting to hear you talk about them. And uh, congratulations on your, your acknowledgments and your recognitions. But I know it's a result of the hard work you've done and the great things you've accomplished. Congratulations. Thank you so much. And thank you again for inviting me. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.